Hello, and welcome to the Anchor Bible Study Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help guide and grow you in your walk with the Lord by providing an in-depth study of God's Word with our Wednesday evening Bible studies here in this podcast. So please grab your Bibles and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with this week's lesson. Let's start with a word of prayer then. Father, we thank you, Lord, for this evening that you have given us to study uh, your word and understand the spiritual battle that we're in. And so help us as we, in this first session, understand your word and be able to apply it properly in spiritual warfare. And then as we look at current events later on, help us to connect dots and have wisdom in reading the signs of the times. We pray now in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, I think where we're at on the forces of darkness, um, we're at number three here, um, the tempter. The, we're going by the titles of Satan, and I think that's where we left off. We, we talked last week about the angel of light it, that he's called. Now we're going to go into the, the concept of him being the tempter. Um, obviously, this pictures him as the ultimate tempter. As you, it goes back to the Garden of Eden, and it goes back uh, to the temptation of the Messiah, and then to our own personal temptation. And um, to understand this, then you need to know the process of how temptation works in the person. And so I wanted to, to stop here and then and kind of do a little study here on James a little bit to understand the process of temptation so that you know where in the process he gets people. So, oh man, that didn't come out good. Um, but too much background on that thing. Anyway, I think you can make it out. Even just squint your eyes. Um, so here we go. So this is James, and I, what James will lay out is actually the profile of the. Um, I don't know what you want to call it, the stages, I guess of. Temptation. And understanding this is a good understanding of how to avoid temptation, obviously. Now, what you're going to see in James is you're going to see the striking points of where Satan will aim at those areas, okay? And um, I guess what you, you want to apply this as to learn how the process works, because this is the same framework every time it doesn't change and so if you learn the process you actually can stop yourself in the midst of temptation if you know where you're at in the process okay so anyway verse 12 says this in james um blessed is the man who endures temptation for when he has been approved he will receive the crown of life which the lord has promised to those who love him and again part of Overcoming temptation, as you can see, is given to those who love him. So the first aspect is if you want to decrease your temptation for the world, you have to increase your love for the Messiah. Your love for him must outweigh the desire that you have for something else. So really at the core of temptation is you're having competing desires. Your desire for Messiah must be number one. If you lose love for the Messiah, then you're susceptible to temptation, which is exactly what happened to the Ephesus church. They had forsaken their first love. They were doctrinally great in everything and been able to fight off uh, all kinds of false teachings and whatnot. But because they lacked love, um, they started developing kind of a careless attitude about their walk with the Lord. They didn't love the Lord so, as much as they thought. Okay, so I, I, the question I always have is, can a believer be saved and not love the Lord to whatever degree? Yeah, it's very, very true. So you can be saved and not love Jesus to whatever degree that is. And to whatever degree you don't love Jesus will be the degree of where your temptation will be. So you have to go through your relationship with the Messiah, first of all, and understand in the categories of his nature where you lack love in him for, okay? So like, for instance, like in Ephesus, um, 
they were second-generation Christians, okay? If you're a first-generation Christian, you're typically the pioneer in your family. You're, you're going to be the one that went through the trenches and went and gutted it out to find your faith in the Messiah and come to faith and build your faith up. And so if you're an Abraham and Sarah and you're the pioneer in the family, those typically be, uh, end up being pretty hardcore about their faith. They really love the Lord because they know where they came from. The second generation is the problem, and the third generation, and the fourth generation. Why? Because they're not the pioneers. Their faith was handed to them, and this is nothing wrong with this, was handed to them on a silver platter by the pioneers. And this is what we learned. So the pioneers find the right church. The pioneers find who teaches truth. The pioneers gutted out in apologetics and have had to deal with the world. And then they hand over the reins to the second generation, and then that generation hands it over to the third and fourth generation, on and on and on. So, it's typically, typically, not all the time, not all the time, it's typically the believer that gets his faith or her faith served up on a silver platter that takes it for granted. Therefore, they have a lesser of a love for the Messiah. They didn't have to gut it out. They're actually riding somebody's coattails, their parents' coattails, typically. And so what tends to happen, not all the time, there's exceptions to the rule, what tends to happen is because they're riding their parents' coattails, they never really develop their own faith for themselves. And if you have an overbearing parent or parents that are forcing a lot of things, forcing compliance, then the minute the kid leaves the house, they're done. And we're seeing a lot of exits out of Christianity because of that very thing. The kid never had its own, his own faith, his or her, her own faith, never trained properly, but everything was forced into for compliance. And then that person doesn't end up loving the Lord, obviously. And it may, it may be that they got saved. Uh, they went to a, uh, a vacation Bible study or whatever. They heard a gospel presentation when they were 12 or 11 or 10 or whatever, and they accepted the Lord. We're not saying they're not saved. They just don't have enough love. And when they go into this world with not enough love for Christ, then their desires will be for the world. There is where Satan gets people. So that's the baseline of understanding temptation. If you want to stop the temptation in your life, you have to love the Lord more. Well, how do you love the Lord more? What, how, how would you do it? If I, you wanted to increase your love for the Lord, hey, read your Bible. Pray. You have a relationship with them. So it's, uh, just let me give you an analogy. Like if you were dating, um, you're getting to know somebody. How, you know, what would you do in dating? You have to spend time with them. You have to learn them, learn about them. I want to know your past, present, and what your future plans are. What does the Bible show you? It shows you what God did in the past. It shows you what he's doing now, and it shows, it shows you what he's going to do in the future. So God has basically opened himself up to saying, you want to know me? I have it all here in 66 books. And the more you know me, the more you will love me. That's why your biblical knowledge and the application of it goes hand in hand with your love. And it also goes in hand in hand with obedience. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So if you want to obey Christ, then you have to love him more. That means you have to spend time with him. That means you have to know him. And we're not talking about a surface level knowledge. You have to know Christ intimately. So the scripture will give another word for knowledge rather than content knowledge, but experiential knowledge. So at certain levels in your Christian walk, you have to get past the content level and you have to go into the experiential level. Now, what I'm talking about is not like the word of faith experiences and you're having slain in the spirit junk and stuff like that. I'm not talking about that, the hyper charismatic movement. I'm talking about like, how does your faith practically work in your life? 
How have you experienced your relationship with the Lord and his provision, in his protection, in his presence, in his all these things that he gives? Have you had experience with him providing for you when you had nothing? That's what we're talking about. That's your experiential knowledge. See, right now, what you're going to have to rely on a lot of times is not only what the Bible says, but also your, your, your personal history with Christ. You're going to look, have to look at what did, he do in, what did he do in biblical history and what did he do in your history? And that's how you gain uh, confidence in the Lord, trust in the Lord, and your love for him. Can you look back in your life and see how he's provided? Can you look back in your life and see how he's guided you? Can you look back in your life and see how he's protected you? Can you look back in your life and see how he has uh, been with you and never left you, never forsook, forsook you? Can you identify those things? If you can, then your own personal history will increase your love for him because you'll see him working in your life. Now, that's the key. So that's the basis of what we need to understand, those who love him, right? And so the promise is this, that if you love him, you will be able to endure temptation and you will be approved. Now, notice the term approved. It doesn't mean accepted. It doesn't say, for when you have been accepted. No, it's when you have been approved. So there's a, acceptance is in salvation. You're accepted in the Messiah once you believe. Approval of the Messiah has to do with your behavior. And in this context, has to do with how you're relating uh, in your, your endurance to persecution. Are you suffering well? Or are you panicking? Are you compromising? If you compromise during persecution, this crown is off limits to compromisers. This crown is only for those who endure temptation. And I'm not talking about like a one-time thing. I'm talking about a course, a, a pattern in your life. You know, if you're always compromising, always giving in, always caving in, then you don't get that kind of crown. So the dominant factor in your life must be that when you are persecuted, when you're enduring temptation, you don't cave in. That should be the general course of your life. Now, we get stronger and stronger as we grow and grow, obviously, compared to when we were new believers. But as a general rule, if you go down that path and endure well in temptation, not, not 100%, we're not asking for perfection. That's not what God's asking. But the general course of your life, then you'll get the crown of life. You get the crown of life for suffering well, and you get the crown of life for suffering persecution. You get the crown of life also for enduring temptation and not caving in. Just like right now. Right now, we're in a cultural revolution. The war is happening right now. It's a cold war, but it's happening. And right now, Christians are being forced into the corner of whether or not they will compromise in all of this, whether or not you will comply with whatever thing they throw at you. And so right now is where you do your battle, so to speak, metaphorically speaking. This is where you take your stand. This is where, if you want that crown, it all begins. This is where it begins. So you have a choice. Stand against what the culture's doing and take your heat. Take your consequences. But in the end, you'll get a crown of life. Cave in because you want your job, you want your money, you want your lifestyle, you want the pattern of life that you've been living. Cave in and don't expect any crown when you're at, when you're at the Bema Sea. You'll get your reward here. He'll, the, the world will, will reward you for the compromise. We're going to talk about the compromise later on uh, in the current events aspects because there, there's more coming our way that are going to force people. Okay. So then the first thing, then the second thing he, he levels out, he says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be, uh, be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. Now, who would say that? 
Who would say that when I'm tempted, oh, I can't believe God put me in this situation and, you know, God's the cause of this? Who would say something like that? Do they say that? What is it that they say? Because he's making a point that, hey, man, this is going to happen and believers are going to blame God for their own temptation. Someone doesn't know the scripture, someone doesn't know God. Ah, let me, let me shed some light on this. It is funny, funny meaning strange, that when people go through very difficult times, they instantly become Calvinists. And I wonder why. Now, what I mean by that is, for some reason, when evil happens to them or temptation happens to them and they fall in the temptation, they instantly go pagan fatalism or theistic fatalism. And they want to say, well, boy, I know God's in control. And if God's in control, then why is he allowing this to happen to me? You see the phrase? It's true that God is allowing it, but they're taking it more in that he's so in control that his allowance is not seen in his permissive will, but seen in his sovereign will. You understand the difference between permissive and sovereign will? Permissive will is that God wants all to be saved, but what is the permission in that? Not all will be saved. God wants it. But he knows all, not all. God wants people not to kill, or sorry, murder. But will they? Yes. So the permissive will of God is what God desires, but he gives human freedom in, in order uh, for people to be free. They have the right of contrary choice to that. They can choose not to do that. That's God's, what we call God's permissive will. Now, what will happen is when a temptation comes to them or a tragedy or something, they will take permissive will and make it sovereign will. Now, sovereign will means that, or providential will, uh, means he has the right to rule. He has the right to do anything because he is the creator. He is God. He has the right to do everything. And they end up going to making permissive will to a sovereign will, and then they Calvinize it and say, God is in control of every every molecule, every decision people make, and all the evil on this planet. And they'll even point to scriptures. Right. That's right. But that's what Satan will do through the temptation is make you think if God is all powerful and if God is all in control of everything, why did he put you in this situation? He knew you would buckle under the pressure being put in this situation. And Satan is saying to you, why do you think he put you in this situation? You, he knew you would fall. He knew you can't handle this. You see how it works? And before you know it, you end up blaming God for the problem and the temptation rather than your own self or Satan or the world system or, you know, someone who, 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 who tempted you. So in temptation, there is a strong pull that when the person gets in trouble, they will go Calvinistic uh, or really pagan fatalism and say, God put me in this situation. And so God's part, partly to blame. Now, do we have any examples of this? Yeah. Genesis chapter 3. The woman you made and gave me caused me to do this. Right? What, what, what did he do? He went fatal on God. He went, he went Calvinistic on God, didn't he? You're the cause of it because the one that you created for me actually was the one who tempted me to do this. And what did Eve do? Who did she blame? The serpent that you basically have created, he's the one who messed me up. So you see the indirect blame of God, even in the temptation? 
So that's where I'm pulling from. So the, the general course going from all the way for Adam and Eve, all of a sudden Adam and Eve go Calvinist. And they want to blame everything in their environment on God as, as you know, and, and not even thinking free will, which they had the ultimate free will, right? Ultimately, they, they didn't even have a sin nature to pull them towards that. They were enticed by their own desires. And so that's why James has to make this big point. And, and remember, in trials, in persecution, you can't go there because theologically it's not possible. And, and what happens if you do? What happens if you blame your own sin on God, you blame your own temptation from coming from God, what do you end up doing spiritually to yourself? You will get out of fellowship real quick. That's number one. Yeah, it is, and that has to be corrected, obviously, because uh, a new believer would not know. New believers, just like Adam and Eve, would just go d directly to Calvinism. Or I, I'm using a, a, a term pejoratively. What I mean is they go to fatalism, that God's in control of all their actions, God's in control in their environment, all that stuff. He is, but he has the permissive will that they're not taking into account. They also are not taking into account the fall that things happen to us through the fall, or things happen to us from Satan's temptation, things happen to us from our own temptations, and they're not taking that all into account. So so you, you break fellowship, and then you end up blaming God. Okay? Now, where what happens to the believer who ends up blaming God? You, you, you got the distance, right? But what, what, what results come from them. Yeah, they won't like God. Their love will grow cold towards God, right? So this is another way of Satan messing up someone's relationship with God. Doesn't mean they're not saved. It's just their love will start growing cold because they think God caused all this. Or why did God do this? Why did God do that? He has the power to change this and he didn't stop this. And they're not, they're not factoring in free will, free will, free will, free will. They're not factoring that in. And before you know it, God is a monster to them. God is this uncaring being that really doesn't care about them. And so the relationship grows colder and colder and colder and could end up, end up leading them into more temptation or more apostasy, more destruction in their life. That's where it starts destroying the person. And Satan is just laughing all the way. And he says, you fool, I'm the one who's doing it, but you're blaming God. He's got them. And he messes them up, messes their mind up like that. So, yeah, go ahead. A Christian uh, will, will say that they backslide? Yeah, it could lead to backsliding. Um, they're like, you know, look, God didn't come to my rescue at this point, didn't save this person. He let this person die on me, whatever. I'm done. I'm not, I'm not going to play the game anymore. But see, that's a, the wrong mind. It's a fatalistic view of God that he's, that he's micromanaging all of our lives. That's not what providence means, okay? Providence means that God is in control, but he allows human freedom and the freedom of even Satan and the demons to do what they will on, on a restricted basis. Okay, where am I at? Let's go here and then come up here. And then there's one back there, guys. We got other mics. Satan will use bitterness. Yes. Quickly. Little, it starts small, but then it gets, starts to grow, and that begins to destroy the relationship right there. Yeah. And so, so as Phil mentioned, it destroys your relationship with God, but then it'll destroy your relationship with other people. The, if the person's bitter um, uh, with God... Well, I can already tell you automatically they're going to be bitter with other people. That's why they, 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 they're difficult to be around. They're like porcupines, man. You just, the closer you get, the more they stab you. And it's because their horizontal is messed up because their vertical, vertical is messed up. And so they're very difficult believers to be around. This, they really hurt. They hurt. Yeah, right there. I'm trying to remember. Any of my teachings that I've ever had, which were most from you, 
never was it ever once told that life was going to be easy. Never was it ever said, never did we ever told that I'm, you believe me. So now everything's be hunky dory. It's all we're, the only thing I've ever heard from any pastor is that you're promised life after death. So where does this misbelief that, okay, my life's great. You made it bad. Up is your fault. Where does that come from? Is it from poor teachings? It's, yeah, prosperity gospel will do it. Uh, Calvinism will do it. It's from false doctrines and um, not understanding. Like, it, you know, some of the surface level churches will just make it all about salvation, and then that's the end goal for the Christian. It's like, that's not the end goal for the Christian. The end goal is glorification. And, and the process of sanctification is a major issue right here and now. So getting saved is the first thing. But most churches will make salvation the issue. And then, they, okay, once you're saved, then that's it. You don't need to worry about anything else. You're good, you're good, you're good. No, that doesn't mean you're good. It means you're just saved. You haven't been conformed to the image of Christ at that point. You have to be sanctified and conformed to that image, and that's where most churches miss it and don't work on this. And so, you know, I mean, flat out, you know, I hate to say it, but there's some doctrines out there that, you know, they'll say if you you fell into temptation, it probably means you're not saved uh, or, or you lost salvation. It's just all this heresy out there, and that destroys people's Christianity. They, they don't even know which way is up or down. Back there, and then we'll come up, or, or come back over here, and then... Well, I was wondering um, if the... Is it appropriate to call it a temptation to lean toward Calvinism and then to, you know, in that situation, would you um, assume that you were never saved in the first place? <laughs> well, you, you hit the nail on the head. See, when we did our, our Calvinism study, good point, last year, in Calvinism, they don't have a good answer of why Christians struggle. In temptation they don't have a good answer so a lot of times you'll hear then counseling Calvinist counseling well you know if you struggle with some addiction you keep getting tempted and tempted they'll say you probably just weren't saved well it's like no 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 that's too easy that's a black and white world um, what the issue is is the person hasn't been discipled properly it's not an issue of salvation, it's an issue of discipleship, but you're totally right. They will push it that way, and it gives them an easy black and white world to say, well, you're just probably not saved. And, it, and that does terrible things to the person. That destroys their faith. Um, and so the person goes back and says, I don't think I'm saved, so they lack assurance. And then the other side, you know, the Arminian side is telling people, well, you, 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 because you keep falling into temptation, um, you lost your salvation. Well, what does that do to the person? Well, that messes them up. So each each side, the Calvinism and the Arminians, will put the person's faith or salvation in doubt. Okay, that's why John MacArthur said, uh, you know, they asked him, are you 100% sure you're saved? And what did he say? No, I'm about 98% sure. Excuse me, that that's, doesn't jive with Scripture. You can't say you're 98% sure you're saved. That's crazy talk. That's what a Catholic would say, right? But it doesn't shock me because out of Calvinism, came uh, they derived it from Augustinianism, which is the main driver of the Catholic Church is Augustine. So the Reformers, you know, like we talked about before, the Reformers were no different than Catholic priests other than they got justification by faith, but they got everything else wrong. Luther and Calvin were horrible theologians, in my opinion horrible and they were violently anti-semitic i don't have anything to do with those guys they're no good where am i at jeff a lot of wait oh sorry go right here and then uh you're talking temptation is the other side of the coin also pain and suffering people you hear it all the time people question why does god allow yeah you, you and you're you got that so that, so we move from temptation and you're, you're talking about like trials and tribulations, right? And the same thing will happen. They will go fatalism on it. Why did God allow my, this person in my life to die? Why did he take them home? Well, be careful about saying those kinds of things because you don't know how much freedom is involved in that person's life. 
Um, did the person not take care of themselves? See, that's a factor in someone's death, okay? See, you don't want to go fatalism and say, you know what, no matter how I treat my body, I'm going to live until God calls me home. That's wrong. That's called fatalism. That's what Calvinism teaches. And so back to the you know trials and tribulations. Why did God do this? Why did well, what about the, how about the fall? Does the fall factor in this? The person got cancer. That God didn't give them cancer. The fall did. The fall gave them cancer. The fall gave them renal failure. The fall gave them a heart attack. The fall gave them this or whatever, right? And so what Satan wants you to do in in, in trials and tribulation is to blame God for it. Well, why didn't God stop the heart attack? Because the person's genetics they inherited perhaps led to that? What do you want God to do? See, here's the thing about God's intervention. He will minimally intervene as little as possible not to disrupt the space-time continuum that we live in. If he constantly did that, it would disrupt our reality. So that's why miracles are rare. That's why the laws are suspended only in certain occasions, like, like in uh, Egypt, like in Jesus' ministry, and like in the tribulation, where there's massive amounts of supernatural activity, where he actually is halting the, the, uh, the space-time continuum to do this miracle, to halt the, the, the universe. So what people end up doing is wanting God to do all these constant miracles in their life, to halt this, to heal that, to do that, and he can. We're not doubting God's ability. But what he's doing is letting things play out. He has to let it play out in order to give freedom to the individual and freedom to humans. That's why it's possible to, to go to your car and someone mug you with a gun and possibly shoot you with a bullet. God doesn't typically intervene and make bubbles come out of the bullets when they fire it. Because what would happen if he did? That every time someone pulled a gun on somebody and tried to shoot somebody, bubbles came out of the gun. He's disrupting free will. And he's not going to do that. That is the one thing he values more than anything in us is that I made you in my image. I will respect that my own image in you by giving you freedom. Oh, wait, we got to go back here. Hold on. That guy went here. Okay. Hosea 6 4 says, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. And so, one, that's why it is so critical that we spend time studying the Word of God so that we know what His Word is and we have that knowledge to act on. Seek God's face and yeah. not his hand. Right over there, Richard. Um, and we've got to come up here. When I first accepted God in my life, it was about 17 years old. But what I noticed from that time until now, nobody ever told me when you accept God in your life that all hell breaks loose on you. <laughs> you right. I know, right? They, they prepare you for the, the salvation. You read it. You accept God, you get the feeling, you get all the Holy Spirit in you. It's like, man, uh, it's because the devil was already with, uh, in your in your sight, but you were doing fine without him. But as soon as you accept God in your life, that's when all hell breaks loose because he wants your soul. He will do anything to destroy it. And so the, the version of Christianity says that, that when you accept Jesus, he becomes a life enhancer. That's That's a heresy. Well, it's the, the unbelieving world cannot discern the spiritual things. And, it, and even immature people can't really discern spiritual things that well. They have an inkling of things, but the, the unregenerate mind has, has a huge problem to grasp what I'm saying. This would go right over their head. They have no clue what I'm talking about. And, and so, um, that's why you have to be spiritually discerned. You have to be born again, and then you have to have the Spirit illuminating these things in your life. And otherwise, and then you have to grow. And if you don't grow, then you go dark too. You go blind to it all. Am I good there with questions? Okay. One more, and I got to move on. Whenever 
somebody talks about abundant life and they're looking for this when they get saved or maybe when they seek God more. And I don't know if that is directly associated with walking in the spirit. Um, but how would you care? How would you characterize abundant life maybe compared to, um, expecting blessing <laughs> as a Christian? Are those the same or are they different? They're different under the new covenant because the church is a partaker of the new covenant, not an overtaker. And let me explain this real quick. So the abundant life is the spiritual life, okay? But the abundant life is prom promised under the new covenant. So anyone that becomes a believer is promised the abundant life, except there's a little bit of difference that you have to understand. The difference towards the church's application of the new covenant and Israel's application of the new covenant, and this is where the word of faith and the prosperity gospels are messing this up, okay? They take the physical blessings that are under the new covenant meant for Israel only once Israel gets saved, and they make it theirs. So if you read Romans, very clear, and then you read Ephesians chapter 1, Paul will make the point that the church or Gentiles participate in the new covenant. The tree is the Abrahamic covenant. The root is the Abrahamic covenant. And out of the Abrahamic covenant comes the, the, the Davidic, the land, and then the new. And we don't participate per se in the land covenant. We, we have the application of Jesus being uh, David's eternal son, but that's promising Israel an eternal dynasty. And then you have the new covenant, which, which is made to Israel, not the church. And then we become partakers of that. Okay. So under the new covenant, Israel receives spiritual blessings and physical blessings. But according to the apostle Paul, the church only receives spiritual blessings as we partake of the new covenant, as Gentiles are grafted in. That's what that picture is. It's a picture of us being grafted in. Okay. So that means the church gets all spiritual blessings afforded to it, but not physical blessings that are afforded to Israel. So when the health, wealth, prosperity gospel teachers go up there, or the NAR or anyone else says, look, I'm pointing to this, I'm claiming this. You fool, that's for Israel. You cannot claim that, and that can only happen in the, in the millennial kingdom under the Messiah's rule and reign. But they start applying it to now, to now, to now, to now. That's what Joel Osteen does, what Joyce Myers does. That's what all Kenneth Copeland, Kenneth Hagen, you just go down the list. That's what they all do. And the problem is, this is what the church has become now. It's become like God's a genie, and I can, I can, I can make things happen physically in my life. That's insane. That's absolutely insane. Now, does God have the, the, the choice to bless you physically? He can, and he does, but that's not a guarantee. The only thing you're guaranteed, please understand the difference between a gracious gift physically versus a guarantee. The new covenant will guarantee you the spiritual life. Okay, what's the spiritual life? It's the life found in Christ. Okay, well, what does that mean? Well, it means that your life on this earth will get harder, but the more you're in this life with Christ, the more free you become. Okay? And so what the, what the life Christ, no one really defines it. Well, I'm going to live for, I'm going to live my life in Christ. What does that mean? It means freedom. The abundant life is freedom from the pool of sin, freedom from thinking incorrectly, the, uh, freedom from believing incorrectly, and that the more I move towards being in Christ, or, or, or sorry, I'm already in Christ, but being like Christ in my, my conformity, the more freer I become. That's what the abundant life is. Now, the abundant life extends, it happens at, at regeneration, but it extends past this life into the millennial kingdom and actually into eternity. You can experience more of an abundant life based on your rewards 
in the Messianic kingdom and eternity. What do you mean? Well, if you get the reward of being able to eat from the tree of life, which only certain people do, being able to eat from the tree of life means that you have actually conquered and overcame a loveless position of your life to where you actually love Christ. That's that you have to overcome that if you if you have a lack of love for Christ. If you overcome that, you actually can eat of the tree of life. Now, what does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean anything to you now, does it? But in the Messianic kingdom or in the New Jerusalem and into eternity, eating from the tree of life actually ministers to you in some superlative way that actually increases your abundant life all throughout eternity, which only they who participate will experience, but those who don't get that reward will not experience. So the abundant life goes on into eternity in the experiential aspects of it. It's not just for here and now. It starts here, but then it moves into a different location. So for instance, ruling and reigning with Christ. Not every Christian is going to rule and reign with Christ. It's only promised to those who are actually faithful and obedient to him all the days of their life. Not talking about like seasons where you get messed up. I'm talking about the general course of your life has been one of service, one of obedience, and you're heading in the right direction. Not that you mess up or anything like that, not perfection, but the general course of your life. Well, those types of believers who continue to grow get to rule and reign. Okay, that means something in the next life. It doesn't mean anything to you now, but it means something in the next life, and it carries on throughout all eternity. And so you actually can experience the abundant life, not only in the Messianic age, but in eternity, where your experience of heaven will be greater than other people's. They'll all be there, but your experience, your abundant life is beyond it because the abundant life is the ability to be set free, and to experience all the spiritual blessings that God affords his believers. If you don't, you will not get all the blessings he wants to give you in the next life, even throughout eternity. That's what the rewards are about. Rewards are about abundant living in the messianic age and eternity. Not right here, not for now. But can you live with the blessings of temporal blessings, spiritual blessings of right now, of course you can, and it's called freedom. Hallelujah. That's it. That When you experience freedom from sin or the pull of sin, uh, or you experience freedom from an attitude or the wrong thoughts, or now you're thinking straight all of a sudden, that's freedom. Welcome to the abundant life. Because now in the abundant life, you see clearly... You're not ignorant anymore. You know what's going on inside of you. You know what's happening with God, other people, reality, and the ability to see things. Now, you, they don't like the environment, right? They don't like the environment because it's a harsh reality to see, but at least you're free. That's the abundant life. Then it compares Jesus Christ to the tree of life, but the tree of life is also the tree that was in the Garden of Eden. Yeah. Are the two one and the same? Or are they two actual significantly different? It's a real tree, but the tree is a metaphor, a symbol for Jesus. Because he feeds us. Because he gives us the eternal life. Two and one again, so to speak. Or yeah, it's, it, it's just what God uses for us, because we're humans, we, we like symbols and we like, uh, because we think in patterns and we think in symbols. So he gives us a symbol, like, like for instance, uh, the water of life that flows from the throne of God, is sim it's a real water, uh, th a river, but it's symbolic of everlasting life. And so the tree is a symbol of the Messiah as he gives everlasting life as well. So, it's, so all, these, all these objects were there to teach us a lesson about Jesus and obviously the Trinity. The freedom to not be stressed, the freedom to not have anxiety, the freedom to not worry. Think about that. Most people are enslaved to anxiety, to stress, and to, and to uh, you know, uh, the, the cares of this world. But as a believer, if you say, I'm stressed out, if you say, I have anxiety, if you say that, what's happening is the person 
doubts God in an area. That's why they're having anxiety and worry and stress. We all get stressed. I'm not saying that. We all get stressed. But then when you are stressed, you have to find a way to free yourself from that. Well, I'm just going to go find an outlet or whatever, and I'm going to relieve my stress, and I, you know, and whatever that might be, I'm going to go run five miles or something like that. But after you're done with the five miles, you come back and the stress is still there and the anxiety is still there. Because the problem is not an outlet problem, it's a thinking problem, it's a believing problem. So you have to corner, what is it that I'm not believing about God if I'm having massive anxiety, massive stress, can't sleep, can't do that. I've, there's something you're not believing about God. It's not that you don't believe in God. You don't trust him for a certain thing. Well, I'm uncertain about my future. Okay, so how do we back that up? How do we squash that? God has your future in his hands. Well, I'm still stressed. Oh, but it's, it's you don't trust God for your future. That's your problem. Well, I don't know if, it, you know, if I, I take a stand for my job, I don't know if I'm going to have another job. Oh, so where is your problem in your belief? Do you believe or don't believe that God can provide another job for you? Because he owns a cattle on a thousand hills. Yeah, I, 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 you're right, Brandon. I don't trust God to provide for me. Okay, at least it's out. At least you know that's the area you have to work on. That's where it starts happening. So, See, what, what you have to understand is sin enslaves. Christ frees. So anytime you're a slave to wrong thinking, anxiety, stress, slave to some type of sin, uh, it's because you're not believing something. So you have to change the belief up here to get set free. And it's always going to be by faith. Always. It's always faith. It's a lack of faith or it is faith. So people say, I'm afraid. I'm afraid. Okay, what are you afraid about? You have to start nailing that down. What are you afraid about? Well, I'm afraid about my future. I'm afraid about my kids. I'm afraid about this. So when, when you're afraid, well, I'm afraid of my, the kind of life my kids are going to have or my grandkids are going to have because I don't want them to grow up in this crazy environment. Okay, let me ask you this question. Does God love your kids more than you love your kids? Case closed. Because he does love your kids more than you do, and your grandkids more than you do, and knows how to take care of them. So what are you worried about? Well, I'm, I just want them to have this, and I want, what if he doesn't want them to have that? Well, I want them to go to college. What if God doesn't want them to go to college? Are you cooperating with God, or are you trying to force your will? You see where the dynamic starts happening with people? They're getting in the way of God's will. Well, I want this for my kids, and I want that for my kids. Back off. They're not yours. They're God's. He will direct their path. Right? <laughs> they're on loan is right. We're, we're simply, as parents and grandparents, we're stewards, right? And so they, they get obnoxious enough, and you want, hey, time to get out. Uh, get on your own. We're tired of this. But anyway, but that's, that's what happens. So, so people start freaking out about their kids, and it's like, dude, you know good and well God loves your kid more than you do. What are you doing? Right. You're just a steward. Just a, you're entrusted with them, but he has their life in their, his hands. He knows what he's going to do with them. He's no worry. He knows where he's going to guide them. And that's good, I guess, to a degree. Yeah, it does. You become overly responsible. And so, yeah, right? A box checker is absolutely, absolute, and what, what, what has developed with, you know, the millennials and the Gen, Gen Z and even Gen X is they became bulldozer parents, okay? So when you see these bulldozer parents, um, what's that a sign of? It's a sign of a lack of faith in God. Is that they got to make it happen. They got to force the issue. They got to push their kids through whatever knothole they want them to go through. And then the parents end up pushing a square peg in a round hole. Because it's their agenda. And it's all on me. No, no thinking about God. So what they end up doing is starting to manipulate the kid's life 
in order to achieve certain things from worldly advantages. And when they start playing that game, like you, you just you can see it. They can't see it. But you step back and you're like, look, you don't trust God with your kids, do you? You don't trust that he has the right path for them, do you? Because you're manipulating the situation. You're forcing them into your mold rather than what God wants from them. Train up a child in the way he should go, and the end he will not depart from it. Most parents don't get that right. They don't even understand the, that, that, that concept. Train up a child in the way he should go. They think it's, it's training them in Christianity. That's not what the Proverbs teaching them. It's given a vine illustration to how you should raise kids. And the idea is you plant a vine, there's the kid, he's planted, and he starts growing. And what you'll see with a grapevine is it will start to go certain directions and start sprouting here, start sprouting here. And your job, if you've ever worked with grapes, is to, if you're going to prune, if you're going to dress the vine, that you have to follow the direction that the sprouts are going and then you tie them to the trellis in the direction that they're flowing. You would never take something on this side of the vine and bend the stalk up, bend the cane back this way and then tie it to the trellis. You couldn't do that. If you've ever pruned grapes, you can't pull against where it's growing. So what God is trying to tell parents is train up a child in the way he should go. What do you see the child doing? Where is the direction he's going and he's being led by the Lord? Oh, good. Then your job as a parent is to uh, facilitate that growth and then tie the little arms on the trellis in which it goes. That's what that passage means. But parents don't get this. They want to force their kids into their mold and they want to live through their kids they want, oh, I didn't get this, I want you to have this. I didn't achieve this, I want you to achieve this. Hey, dude, leave them alone. It's their life, not yours. But you go to any athletic program out here in, in Kern County, these parents are crazy. They're absolutely, I can't stand being around them anymore. I've been around them enough, I'm done. They are so crazy about their kids, but it's, it's some dad wanting to live through his son. Soccer moms, all this other stuff. And then you see these, these, uh, parents on, uh, you know, these dance moms or whatever on TV. These, these people are creeps. They're absolutely creeps. I wouldn't want that kind of mom, would you? Oh, yeah, it's horrible. But what are they doing? They're bending the kid to their will against the grain. Now, let me ask you this. If you've ever pruned Thompson's, Thompson's, you gotta let the cane grow out. Okay? It's not like the other grapes where you, you, you leave, leave two eyes and then you prune it. With a Thompson, you have canes. And so if you take that Thompson cane and bend it, what will happen to eventually the cane? Snaps. So that's why you can't bend it against the grain. That's what they were trying to say in the part, in Proverbs is don't try to bend it the other way. Let it go where it's happening and then tie it up. So, Anywho, I don't know how we got that far, but that's where we ended up. Okay, so just a couple, one more thing, and then we'll we'll take a break. So so go, now going back to um, to temptation, he says, but each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Ah, okay, wait a second. So, so Satan's going to capitalize on our lack of love, and then he's going to capitalize on what we are drawn away for, to, towards, drawn away from God towards our desires. And then you see an enticed, that's where he enters into the picture of temptation. It's that, that area. So, let me ask you this question, because a lot of people have trouble with this. When I talk about Satan, I'm obviously, you know, he's not personally tempting you. He's probably with, you know, Putin and Biden and all these other people, right? Um, he's not, but obviously he's got myriads and myriads of fallen angels and demons at his disposal. Okay. So here's what, 
needs to be understood. They watch you. And they watch you to see what your desires are. They listen to your conversations. They're seeing your actions. They see your behaviors. That's why they're called watchers. The other word for angels is watchers, because what do they do? They watch. And they can watch you for years. Okay? Now, what are they looking for in you? They're looking for a way to take you down. That's what it's about. They want to know you personally. They want to know you intimately, and they will do it by watching you. Now, we all have proclivities. We all have bents. And so they learn pretty early on what our desires are. Now, not every desire is bad. This is, a, this is a key understanding. Not every desire is bad. You can have good desires that can be misused, and you can have bad desires, obviously, that wants evil things. So you can go both ways, okay? But either way, they figure out what your desires are. Now, with the, the, with the Messiah, they, Satan tempted him personally with good desires, didn't he? It was good desires, not evil desires, because you can't tempt the Son of Man with evil desires, because the Son of Man is not going to respond to that. But what will the Son of Man respond? A good desire. I'm hungry, turn this rock into bread. That's a good desire. That's not an evil desire. To rule the kingdom of the world. That's what Messiah desires. He desires to rule the kingdom of the world. That's a good desire. But what was the problem? The time wasn't right. You see, so Satan can take a good desire of yours and manipulate it to be done at the wrong time, at the wrong place, and mess the whole thing up. So he knows they're watching your desires, good or bad. And this is where the temptation goes. This is where he fits in. So the temptation will be tailor-made for you. Tailor-made. Because they know your proclivities. So it's not like he's trying things out on you. He knows where to get you at. And this becomes a major problem. He's going to hit you in three different areas. We're going to talk more about this. But he's going to hit you in the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. There's only three major categories that you have to think about. And First John mentions this. But So here's where your temptation will come from. The lust of the eyes are the things you see that you want. You actually covet them. Okay? It's, it, you covet these things. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's security. Maybe it's, you know, whatever. You see something, you want it. The lust of the flesh has to do with what your body wants, what your, your sin nature wants to gratify itself in a physical way. Uh, people want to feel good. They want to have less stress, those kinds of things. Well, that person will look for fleshly outlets in order to Get that feeling, get that relief. Could, they could turn to drugs, they can turn to alcohol, they can turn to addiction, sex, everything. They will look for something that satisfies and gratifies their flesh. Their, not just their body, but the sin nature. Okay? And then the pride of life is a category in which it will, uh, if they, they desire to make themselves look good in public to other people. They desire to make themselves look good. It's, it's back to the Tower of Babel. Uh, they, they built a tower to make a name unto themselves. So the person will do things to have notoriety, to be famous, to, to be known in the community, yada, 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 the whole thing. They, they do things for people to see. Okay. So those are the three categories in which he will come at you. There's only three categories, and they encompass everything. And so what he'll figure out is where is your problem. Is it the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, or the pride of life? They will figure this out, and then they will hit you there, right in those areas. It would be one of those three areas, or all three, maybe, perhaps. Okay, I'm going to stop there. We're going to get into the, the sequencing of the temptation next time, and then we'll flush it out, because in the sequencing, I want to show you how he works through the sequencing. Okay, any questions before we take a break on that? Clear as mud, right? All right, let's take five. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Anchor Bible Study Podcast. 
We hope that this lesson is a blessing to you and helps grow you towards a more mature understanding of God's Word. Rock Harbor Church has another podcast called Anchor Sunday Sermons, and it's filled with past and present messages in Revelation, Genesis, and Exodus. If you enjoyed this message and would like to hear it, please check the description of this episode or search your favorite podcast streaming services for the Anchor Sunday Sermons. Support for both of our podcasts comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Until next time, remember, keep looking up, for our redemption draws nearer.